Well, good morning. Happy anniversary, by the way. It was 11 years ago today that I turned 48 years old, and Grace Life Church held its very first worship service in the Purcell Friendship Hall on the campus of Milton Hershey School. There were probably around 70 people that were there that day, several of whom were, were visitors. If we fast forward just 11 short years, and we pause today to be reminded of all that the Lord has done in and through us as a local church. And I've said this often over the years, that God's fingerprints have been all over Grace Life Church since our inception. And it's no less than amazing the innumerable blessings that the Lord has, has brought our way through these past 11 years. Among his many blessings is the provision of this 40,000 square foot facility on 12 acres. Uh, from humble beginnings to blessings beyond measure, our church now ministers to around 350 people. And over the past 11 years, we've seen many folks come to faith in Christ and many other follow the Lord in believer's baptism. We've discipled and commissioned men for ministry. We've eagerly supported numerous missionaries who are able to go to places where we're not able to go. And we've centered our ministry on the proclamation of God's word. And we've all grown in our faith. And we've all seen God's hand at work in our lives and in our church. Well, if you've seen the title of today's message, The Perfect Church, let me just begin this morning by saying there is no perfect church. Grace Life Church is far from a perfect church because, of course, we're, we're made up of imperfect people, right? That shouldn't be too awfully profound because most of us know that the New Testament word for church has nothing to do with a well-designed ministry paradigm or with a building or with stellar programs or, or with any other such thing. The New Testament word for church is ecclesia, which means the called out ones. And so surprise, surprise, the church is comprised of sinners, <laughs> but, but not just sinners, sinners who have experienced the amazing grace of God in their lives, sinners whom God has called out to salvation. The church is made up of those who've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. In the Bible, when the church is referenced, it's either referring to the universal church or it's referring to the local church. The universal church is uh, made up of all believers from the day of Pentecost that we see in Acts chapter 2 up and until the rapture of the church. And there are many examples in Scripture of references to the universal church. For instance, when Paul said in Ephesians 5.25 that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He's referring there to the universal church. That passage of Scripture is going to be read in about a week and a half at my daughter's wedding here in this auditorium. And I will look her husband future husband, in the eye and say, this is how you're to love your wife. You're to love your wife as Christ has loved the church. How has he done that? He's done that in a sacrificial way where he actually gave himself up for the church. When Jesus said in Matthew 16, in verse 18, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church 
and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He's referring there to the universal church, all believers from the time of Pentecost until the time of the rapture of the church. When Paul lamented in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, that he was the least of the apostles because he persecuted the church of God. He's referring there to the universal church. But with all that being said, most of the references to the church in the New Testament is referring in the local church context, like the church at Ephesus, or the church at Philippi, or the church at Colossae, or the the church at Thessalonica, and we could go on and on. The Apostle Paul wrote at least 13 New Testament books, and most of his letters were written to a particular local church, or a particular person in a local church. And so we have a lot of inspired instruction about what the local church is supposed to look like, and how it's supposed to operate. Every New Testament Christian should be accountable to a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church because it is in and through the local church that we are to serve and, and to use our gifts. And let me just say, as things have kind of gotten, our plans today have kind of changed a little bit. We were looking forward to celebrating our 11-year anniversary and celebrating our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, outdoors. And we were looking forward to having an outdoor picnic. And we were looking forward to a lot of fellowship that goes with that and all kinds of fun. You know, when I think about our church, I'm totally fine with moving indoors. Uh, The church isn't about whether we're going to meet outside or whether we're going to meet inside. The church is about us. The church is about the people of God. And I am so grateful and so thankful for our local church. Imperfect as though we may be, uh, we are who we are. And the Lord has done great things in and through our church over these last 11 years. And I am privileged to have served as your pastor for all of those 11 years. So we have a perfect Savior, right? He's the head of the church, but there is no perfect church. But while there is no perfect church, there is a perfect design for the church. And it's the formation of this perfect design in the local church context that we want to consider today as we investigate the Word of God. But before we look at our passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, I want to say that there are three essential marks of a true local church, okay? If any one of these three marks are missing, it's not a church. And here they are. The first mark is that a church must have a biblical leadership structure whose authority is the Word of God. Without qualified male elders who lead, guide, teach, and shepherd the congregational believers, it's not a true church. The second mark is that a church must practice the ordinances, which are water baptism and the Lord's Supper. We just recently baptized nine people who wanted to publicly profess their faith in Jesus Christ in obedience to the command that we're to be baptized as the people of God. A church that doesn't practice the ordinances, water baptism, and the Lord's Supper, it's not a true church. The third mark is that a church must practice discipline, which means that if a so-called church doesn't confront sin and hold people accountable for their sin, it's not a true church. 
All of this is important as we examine this short section here in 1 Corinthians today and consider God's perfect design for his church. Now, to set the stage for what we want to consider today, we need to know that the church at Corinth was a very worldly uh, church in many ways. The church in many ways mirrored the moral corruption of that depraved city. The church was full of selfish, sinful, divisive people, many, actually most, who claimed to be believers in Christ. And so Paul begins this letter by teaching the church in verses 1 through 9 about their spiritual position, if in fact these people were true believers. He reminds them that they are saints by calling and that they, they've been sanctified or they've been set apart unto holiness for God's possession and use. But Paul's writing this letter with purpose. And it's to rebuke the people at the church at Corinth by telling them that while they may be saints, those who are sanctified and set apart for God's possession and use, they were not living out their position. They were sinfully putting their own interests above the interests of the Lord and His church. And this is why there are no perfect churches, because whenever there are people involved, things can get messy. So I want to read the passage to you, and we're just going to go through it, and we're going to kind of look at it in the big picture this morning. But uh, I think there's a lot here for us to be able to, to uh, grab onto. So look at verse 10 here, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying that I'm of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize all, also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void." And so this morning, as we celebrate our 11-year anniversary, we want to consider three traits of the perfect church. In other words, what would a perfect church look like in the eyes of God? At first, I think we would say that the perfect church would have perfect unity, right? So look at verse 10 again with me. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. So he addresses them here as brethren or, or brothers. This is an assumption that these people that are receiving the letter that he's written to the church at Corinth are brothers in Christ, they're brethren. But notice here that the situation in the church at Corinth is so tenuous and so out of control that Paul exhorts them. The word exhort here means to correct, and it really sets the tone for the seriousness of what Paul wants to say. And notice that his authority for this correction is by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Unfortunately, just like those in the church at Corinth, there are folks today that aren't all that interested in being exhorted or corrected. But that's how Paul begins. Here in verse 10, Paul says virtually the same thing in three different ways. First, he tells them that they are all to agree. And, And this, no doubt, reaches deep into the realm of doctrine, which is the basis for our agreement in the local church. Second, he says that there are to be no divisions among them. And then third, he says that they are to be of the same mind and the same judgment. And so what he's calling for here is doctrinal and corporate unity. And at the heart of unity is the idea of oneness. Oneness. There's a great diversity in the local church, right? All of us come from different backgrounds, different families, different walks of life, some of us from different parts of the country. And so there's a great diversity in the local church, but when we come together as a body, we are to be one, one with a common purpose and a common goal, with a common heartbeat. The church is to be of one mind and one heart and one spirit, striving together, not for our own glory, but for the glory of God. And he said it this way to the church at Philippi in Philippians 1.27. He said, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Unity requires purposeful intention. Paul might say it this way, unity in the local church is more important than you getting your way. Unity in the local church is more important than any of your preferences. Satan and his demons hate it when the church is unified together. Why? Because unity requires selflessness. Unfortunately, self often gets in the way of selflessness. So rather than unity, we see in churches today, there's often meanity. Not unity, meanity. What, what, what is this going to do for me? I feel like there's a consumer mentality now that has moved from the culture to the church. You know, uh, what is it that I can get out of the church? I was thinking a lot about this this past week. I mean, we've got 11 years under our belt as a local church. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's hard to believe. And the Lord has been so gracious to us. Um, There's been some people that have come and people that have gone, and a whole lot of us have come and stayed and have been a part of the church and have uh, given of our talents and our gifts and our funds that God has provided for us to help to make this be a a vibrant local church. It's really been neat to see God's hand at work. I think all the way back to our infancy where we didn't have a place to meet. (laughs) We didn't have anything. We didn't have any money. We didn't have anything. All we had were people that loved the Lord that wanted to be together in the local church context And that's enough. And the Lord has grown us over the years and He's given us things and His hand of blessing has been upon us. But it's all to His glory. It's all to His credit. 
You see, he, he wants us to be unified in the church, not meified. And, and that's a hard thing for us to do, isn't it? Because we live in a culture where it's all about us, right? It's all about us. What can we get out of this? I mean, I read an article the other day that people are changing jobs faster than they ever have in the history of our country. So they'll go into a new job, and if they don't like it, and if it's not suited for them, they're out the door. And so rather than having a oneness with those that they work with, under the umbrella of the leadership of that office or that company, it's all about me. And so I think that that mentality has drifted into the church. And I've been doing this for a long time, and I, I see that when, there, when there's something that's pressing in the culture, and it's big, it sometimes usually gets perpetuated in the church. And so we see that the culture is affecting the church today. The word divisions here is the Greek word schismata, which is where we get our English word schism. It means to tear or to rip apart. What he's saying is that divisions tear or rip apart the church. And this is why Paul said in Romans 16 and verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren, to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you've learned, and turn away from them. God is so protective of his church that he says in Titus 2.10 that the church is to reject and remove a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. So God calls for unity, not meanity. He calls for us to be one. How is it that the local church can be of the same mind and of the same judgment? After all, as I said, there are so many people with so many different backgrounds and ideas and thoughts. How is it that we can be all on the same page in unity? Well, I think if we ask the Lord, what is the key to unity in his church? He would say that the key lies in the church solidly recognizing his God-ordained authority and submitting to them in the church. If you study the epistles, you're not going to find mention of a democratic form of church government, nor will you find a single pastor dictatorship model. Rather, what we find when we search the scriptures is a plurality of elders called by God to lead and to guide the church under the authority of the scriptures and a church body who follows their leadership. That's God's way. That's God's way. First Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. But we ask you, brothers and sisters, to recognize those who diligently labor among you and are in leadership over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you redeem them very highly in love because of their work. But the church at Corinth didn't appear to be doing that. Rather than following the God-ordained leadership of the church and having a high regard for them, they instead divided over all kinds of things. 
the writer of Hebrews lays out the responsibility of both members of the local church and leaders of the local church in Hebrews 13 and verse 17, which says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they may do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. You see, we sacrifice for unity. We sacrifice. We, we, we don't go to the mat on every little thing that happens. <laughs> if we did that, could you imagine the chaos? It, there's a reason why we don't vote on all kinds of extemporaneous things like the color of the carpet, the color of the walls, and all these kinds of things. It breeds infighting in the church. Plus, I don't see it in Scripture. God has ordained the office of elder, pastor, to lead and to guide and to shepherd and to teach the church. And you know, this is not anything new. We've operated this way since our inception. And I appreciate that we have a heart in the church of those who are willingly putting themselves under the leadership of our six elders in the church. We have ten deacons that work alongside as our right arm. A church that doesn't have proper male leadership isn't a church. And we've been blessed by God to have men who lead their families and lead in the church. John MacArthur summarizes those two passages that I just read to you this way. He says, God's people are to follow, not quibble with and question, godly leaders who are one in mind as to God's word and will. In God's order, a congregation is to be under the rule of its leaders just as children are to be under the rule of their parents. That is God's way. And so there's a selflessness that goes with unity. God calls for us to be one, and there's a selflessness that goes with that. We don't need to get our way on everything, right? We don't need to have things done exactly the way that we want them to do. The elders of our church have been given the God-given responsibility to lead and to guide the church and the congregation, as God's Word says, is to submit to them, follow them, allow them to do their work and ministry with joy and not with grief. And so every person, ministry, and group in the church is commanded by God to be submissive to those who God has placed in eldership in His church. The only exception to this would be if the elders were to ask us to sin then, of course, we wouldn't sin. But this submission to the collective eldership includes, by the way, every individual elder. And so all of us are to have a submissive heart and a submissive attitude. And I think one of the reasons why God has so abundantly blessed our church is because, for the most part, this has been the case over the course of the last 11 years at our church. Had the Corinthian church followed this biblical model, there would not have been divisions among them, and Paul would not have had to exhort them. But they were all about me, Nitti, rather than unity in the church. So a perfect church would have perfect unity under the authority of God's Word and His ordained leadership. But second, a perfect church would have perfect priorities. So if you look at the verses to follow here in verse 11... It says this, 
For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. And now I mean this, that each one of you is saying that I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Can you imagine receiving this letter from the Apostle Paul? And he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you people. Wow. Verse 15, so that no one would say they were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other and so the church at Corinth, obviously, as we've read it, they, they had a number of factions. Paul learns of this from Chloe, who was most likely a prominent member in the church at Corinth. We're not sure if Chloe was a man or a woman, but Chloe cared enough about the church that he or she informs the Apostle Paul that people are sinning by drawing up sides in the church. People in the church who should know better. They were aligning themselves with, with others based upon preferences. And in this case, it was their preference of their favorite preacher. But it could have been anything. Paul, who had started the church at Corinth, he pastored there for about a year and a half. And then Apollos became the pastor. Uh, and then apparently a number of people in the church had been saved under the ministry of Cephas, who we know as Peter. Some even identified as a Christ-only group. They were the real spiritual people, rejecting the need for human teachers and preachers and leaders. So the church was a mess. Why was it a mess? Why was the church at Corinth a mess? Because their priorities were all wrong, and it created a divided church. Each of the men that are mentioned here were no doubt fine teachers, godly men, but the members of the church at Corinth had essentially become groupies. So they aligned themselves with their favorite preacher. There's going to be a day when I retire and uh, I'm no longer the pastor of our church. And when that day comes, I would certainly hope that you would give the new pastor the same love and support that you have given me over all of these years. It's a reminder that the church is so much bigger than one person. You see, a church divided is an abomination before the Lord. Jesus himself, in the longest prayer recorded in the Scriptures, pleads with his people to be unified when he says in John 17, in verse 21 and 22, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I also have given to them, so that they may be one, just as we are one. How many of you have read that verse before? How many of you know that verse? You know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying that the church is to have the same unity as the Godhead. There is perfect unity in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Perfect unity within the Godhead. And that's how the church is to be. We're to have a perfect unity in the same way that the Godhead has unity. 
And even though Paul was an apostle used by the Lord to to start this church, he wanted no part of the faction that was named for him. And he goes on to remind them he he was never crucified for anyone. He never baptized a soul in his own name. In fact, their behavior was so disgusting that he tells them in verse 14 that he's glad that he hadn't baptized any of them, except Crispus and Gaius, and then eventually he says the household of Stephanus. So what do we do with all of this? Because it's natural for us to appreciate the person who led us to Christ, right? Or our pastors, or our elders, or, or any other person who had a positive impact on our life. That should be natural for us. We should be naturally appreciative of those who have ministered to us. But none of them were crucified on our behalf. None of us were baptized in their name. And so I think we, we get the point. Our supreme loyalty lies with our Savior and Lord. It's Him we desire to please. It's Christ who was the perfect sacrifice for our sin and died in our place. It was in Him, His name that we were baptized. And it's His desire that we have this unity in the church. So a perfect church would have perfect unity under the authority of God's Word and His ordained leadership. Second, a perfect church would have perfect priorities, putting the church and others before themselves. And then third, a perfect church would have a perfect mission. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. When Kathy and I travel, one of the things that I like to do is I like to look at the architecture of churches. In some parts of the country, I mean, there are churches seemingly on every street corner. There are a lot of churches in our area here. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but just as you're driving around in different neighborhoods or you're driving on different streets, just notice how many buildings there are that call themselves a church. It's remarkable. And I'll say sometimes to Kathy, I'll say, are there people that really go here to this church? You ever wonder about that? Are all these churches full or are they barely hanging on? Is there 20 or 30 people that are going here and they're just so stubborn they're not going to let go of their church? I don't know. I don't know a lot about the different churches. I know about their denominational affiliation, which would put them into the category of those three marks that we mentioned earlier. They would not fall into the category of a true church. So just because there's church on the marquee doesn't mean it's a, it's a true church. We were down in uh, the southern part of the country and uh, down in the Carolinas, and you want to talk about the Bible Belt and churches almost on every corner. I'd love to know more about these different buildings that have church on their marquee because I have a hard time figuring out what they're about. What they're about. Because I'll look and they'll have a, a bake sale coming up. They'll have a potluck dinner coming up. They'll have all these different things that they're advertising on their marquee. I, I don't know. What, what, what is it that you're about? What is it that you believe that drives your church? 
Because that's what a, a true church is. A true church derives their existence from the Scriptures and what God says a true church is to be about. Acts 2 is one of the greatest and most profound sections in all the Bible because it records the inauguration of the church. So I want to take you back there just for a moment. Go with me back to Acts chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 2. And let me say as you're turning, and we'll look at verses 42 through 47 here in a moment, it matters the purpose for which each individual book of the Bible has been written. Okay? So the purpose of the book of Acts, why did God in his providence give us the book of Acts? Well, he gave us the book of Acts because it's a history book. It shows the inauguration of the church. So in Acts chapter uh, 2, we find that Peter preaches this powerful sermon, and 3,000 people have their eyes opened by God to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 41 tells us that after 3,000 people received the word, they then followed the Lord in believers' baptism. So this is why the book of Acts was written. It was written for us to know what God did and how the church started. But let me say, because it is historical in nature, it is descriptive and not prescriptive. Do you know what I mean by that? It describes what happens, but just because it happened in history doesn't mean that that's what we're to do as the church. So we're going to look at the inauguration of the church, but then as we move through the book of Acts, we see the perpetuation of the church, but it's not until we get to the epistles that we see how we're to do church, okay? So the epistles were written for our instruction as a church, as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, How are we to live as a Christian in this world? How are we to come together as a church? Well, we find all that in the epistles. That's their purpose. So the purpose of Acts is more of a historical narrative to describe for us, for us to vividly see how the church came about. So that is its its purpose. And so here in verses 42 through 47 we find the activities of the first local church. Verse 42. Coming off of the heels of verse 41, where these 3,000 souls came to faith in Christ and were baptized. And then verse 42, the church began in earnest. (laughs) So what did they do? What were their priorities? Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then he goes on in verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So these wonders and signs were to authenticate the apostles' message that Jesus Christ had gone to the cross, he had died in the place of sinners, 
and that you can have faith in Christ by believing in Jesus, who is the risen Savior. And so the Lord gave the apostles all of these signs and wonders so that the people would take notice of what they're saying. And all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. Verse 44. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what do these people do? Immediately following God doing this amazing work in their life, these are the first New Testament Christians. Immediately following their conversion, they recognize the need to come together in unity for corporate worship and biblical instruction. To observe the Lord's Supper. To pray for one another. They they realize the absolute necessity to interact and depend upon one another. This is what the early church did. And in my mind, this is the most pure that we find in Scripture. Because they all had this in common, that God had saved them from their sin. The Spirit of God had now indwelt them. And they came together in unity in a way that they'd never seen before. The world had never seen anything like this. You know, a lot of these people had lost their families they had turned from Judaism and they turned to faith in Jesus Christ. They'd lost their work, their jobs, and all kinds of things. Their families turned on them because they came to faith in Christ. And so there was something special about what happened back here in Acts chapter 2. They, they, they were so in, they came together. They even sold their possessions so that everyone would have what they needed Because maybe there were some that were very wealthy and they could sell some of their possessions so that they could help out others who were not so wealthy. But see, it wasn't about meanity. It was about unity. It was all about others. And so we look at this and we go, that's the tenor of that is what we should crave as as the church today having a dependence upon one another, a reliance upon one another, a love for one another in the body of Christ. So we ask the question, why do churches have division and dissension? It's because they lose track of the mission. Sinful people who cast aside the command for unity and they make everything about themselves. Their wants, their needs, their rights, their desires. I've seen it way too many times in my 25 to 30 years in pastoral ministry. And ultimately, if we boil it all down, sinful pride is always at the root of division in the church. When I was, uh, I think when I turned seven, years of age, uh, my mom held a birthday party at our house. 
And we were of meager means. Our, our family didn't have a lot of resources, and, but neither did any of the other families in our neighborhood, so we didn't know we were poor. But my mom held a birthday party for me, so it would have been 52 years ago that she would have done that. And at that birthday party, I think we were, had 12 or 15 friends that were invited, and they all brought me a gift. And it was cool, man, I, you know, because I'd get like three presents for Christmas. And so I got 12 presents to open, and it was really cool. Well, one of my friends uh, bought me uh, a ball, but it was not just a regular ball. It was like one of those fancy balls. Like when you kick it, it really flies. And so, man, this thing became a hit. I opened that, and I thought, wow, I've got this neat ball and so we began to play, and we were playing kickball in the backyard. We're having a good old time. Well, this kid got his shorts in a knot <laughs> because I don't know if we called him out or what happened, but you heard of the whole thing about someone taking their ball and going home? That's what he did. He took his ball, and he went home, and I'm looking around going, this was my favorite present. He took his ball, and he went home because it was more important for him to get his way than to be unified with our group that was there that day at the birthday party. That's what happens sometimes in the church. People put their own interests above the interests of others. And so as a church, as individuals who make up the church, we cannot lose track of our mission because if we do whether it's individually losing track of our mission or losing track of our mission on a corporate level, nothing good and pleasing to the Lord is going to happen. And so what is our mission? What is our mission as a church? Well, in our founding documents, we've enumerated our mission with three easy-to-remember E words. We're to exalt the Lord, we're to edify one another, and we're to evangelize the world in our case, our local community. And so as we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we see that Paul understood his mission. In fact, he states it here. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. It's Christ's church. It's his word. It's his gospel that we're to proclaim. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon, and this has sort of been my motto over uh, my many years as a pastor. Spurgeon said this, God gave me this great book to preach from, and if he's put anything in it that you think is not fit, go and complain to him, not to me. I am simply his servant, and if his errand that I am to tell you is objectionable, I cannot help it. Let me tell you, the reason why many of our churches are declining is just because this doctrine has not been preached. And so while we're here, we don't want to miss it. Notice that Paul clearly differentiates the gospel from baptism, right? If baptism were a part of the gospel itself, necessary for salvation, what good would it have been for Paul to preach the gospel but not to baptize? No one would have been saved. And so Paul clearly understood that baptism is separate from the gospel. So baptism is in no way efficacious for salvation. 
I've never really liked hypothetical questions. I get them all the time. Questions like, if you won the lottery, what would you do with the money? Well, I don't play the lottery, and so I'm never going to win the lottery. But if I did win the lottery, I would do the same thing I'm doing now, which is what I want to do, and I would give as much money as I could to the church so that we could renovate the classrooms and fix the roof and build a new auditorium because that's where my heart is at. It's with our church. Another hypothetical question that's often asked is, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Well, I would live right here. If I wanted to live somewhere else, then I would move there. People ask, if you could be a professional athlete, what, which sport would you choose? Well, I'm not a professional athlete, but if I was, I'd probably be a baseball player, but I'd rather be your pastor than a professional baseball player. And then this hypothetical question is often asked. If you were stranded on a desert island, someone just got in trouble with this question. I couldn't remember who it was, but someone just got in trouble with this question. If you were stranded on a desert island and you could pick one thing to take with you, what would it be? It puts me in a tough spot. (laughs) But... I think this, this will make up for it. I would pick a boat <laughs> so I could get off the island and get back to ministering to you all. Some people could go up to a cabin and live by themselves. My mom was kind of like that, but I could never do that. As hard as it is sometimes to minister to a diverse group of people, I don't want to do anything else than what I'm doing because I do love people. I love being around people. We need the corporate aspect that was described for us in Acts chapter 2. We need the corporate aspect that the church provides. In the epistles, there's a unique word that's used to describe this community aspect that the church is to be about. There's no other organism or organization like the church. The Greek word alolon is usually translated as one another in the New Testament. It's it's actually used 58 times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul himself uses the word 40 times. And so peppered throughout the New Testament, we find the interaction that we're to have within the local church. We're to be members of one another. We're to be devoted to one another. We're to honor one another. We're to be of the same mind with one another. We're to accept one another. We're to admonish one another. We're to greet one another. We're to serve one another. We're to bear one another's burdens. We're to bear with one another, submit to one another, encourage one another, love one another, pray for one another. The writer of Hebrews sums it up this way. He says, we are to stimulate, literally to stir up one another to love and good deeds. There is no perfect church. But God has given us a perfect design. A church that honors the Lord is all about unity. It's all about priorities. It's all about mission. So let me ask you a question, and and I think I know the answer because... um, People ask me often about our church. I say, you know, we're, not a, we're a no-frills church. <laughs> we're a no-frills church. We have a nice facility here compared to some other facilities. Compared to the facility that I was just in this past week at a pastor's meeting, uh, not even close. 
Not even close. But we're not about a building. We're, we're kind of a no-frills church. You come to our church. You know, we do things well, I think, and excellently, and we have great people that work with our different ministries and all that. I think we do things well. I think we're a normal uh, church, just a church that's trying our best to honor the Lord. And so people say, you know, well, how big's your church? Because as if that matters as to how or what God is doing in and among us. And so I adopted this thing years ago at the Shepherds Conference out in California because everyone wants to know how big your church is. I say, well, we're somewhere between two and 3,000 people. That's true, right? Two and 3,000 people. Wow! Wow. <laughs> I don't want to be a church of 3,000 people. If, if, if the Lord would do that here, awesome. But I want us just to continue to grow together, to continue to grow in our faith. And then when we celebrate our 20-year anniversary, we will look back and go, wow, look what God has done. Because that's what I do. When people ask me about our church, I just go, it's all God. Look what He's done. So I ask you the question, do you love the church? Do you love the church? Aren't we supposed to love the things that God loves? God loved the church so much that He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and to die in the place of those who make up the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. So my charge to our church on our 11-year anniversary, let's be one. One in purpose, one in mind, one in spirit. Practicing unity in our church. Forgiving one another, being a part of each other's lives in a special way. And being in each other's lives. Being in each other's lives. You know, uh, it's one thing for us to be invited over to somebody's house for dinner, and that's good. We should go and we should be a part of that. But let's not whine and moan and complain. No one's inviting me over. Invite them over. Novel idea. Right? You want to be a part of people's lives, make an effort. Make an effort. Look around. Hey, I don't know them very well. I'm going to invite them over to my house to get to know them better. Awesome. It's neat for me to watch the relationships that are built within our church through the avenue of different ministries and people doing that thing. We need to do more of that. We need to be more together. There's a lot going on. I get it. There's ball games, there's uh, family events, there's all kinds of things that are going on, traditional events that we are a part of as families. and so I get all that, and all that's good. But as I told the church in New Mexico, the church, and you've heard me say it, the church should be the hub of our lives. This is how God has designed the church for Christians to be all in, not dancing around the perimeter, but being all in. That's what he wants from us. And that's what we are to give him because he sent his son to die for the church. And so my charge to the church is we need to love the church more. 
Because that's what God loves. He loves his church. He's working in and through his church. That is his plan. Plan A is to work in and through the church. We are the church. You and I are the church. I'm looking forward to our elders and deacons meeting on Tuesday. We're going to talk about some of these things that we can do to continue to be the church and to do the things that we need to do as the church to keep our priorities in order and on point and on mission and not to be distracted by all the stuff that's going on in the world. This is a safe haven for us. We get to be here together with God's people. We all care about the same things. You go back to your neighborhood, not all your neighbors care about the same things you care about. You go to work and not all the people you work with care about the things you care about. Even if you have a family reunion, not all the people in your family are going to care about the things you care about. But we do. We do. And so we want to come together in love and in unity and in excellence as we move forward as a local church. God's fingerprints have been all over our church since its inception. We do not want to displease him in any way, shape, or form. We're here for him, not for us. And we thank him for all that he's done. And by the way, before I pray, it's kind of fun to be dressed like this today. (laughs) I always wondered what these hipster pastor guys, how it felt to preach without a sport coat on, or now I know. I was telling one of the guys earlier, Skinny jeans don't work for me. <laughs> so I'll be all dressed up next week. Hey, we're going to begin the Gospel of John next week. I am fired up about that study. Why don't you go ahead and start reading through the Gospel of John, and uh, we'll start uh, next week. It's going to take us forever to get through it, but I am thrilled and excited to start. I've already started with that, and so uh, that's what we're going to do as we start our 12th year as a local church. So we'll look forward to fellowshipping and being together for lunch here in a moment as, uh, as we uh, close out our service. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for these precious people that you have brought to Grace Life Church. When we think of the church, we, we, we think of each other. Uh, you brought us here to be a part of each other's lives in a special way. And you have brought some of the most amazing, fantastic people on the earth to come here and to be a part of each other's lives. We are all blessed beyond measure. Thank you for all of the work that has been done over all of these years. 11 uh, years of hard work by your people who love you and desire to serve you and to live for you. And Lord, we want to be able to look back in another nine years or so and say, wow, look what the Lord is continuing to do. It's all about you. It's not about us. And so we're so grateful that you are working in and through our church in a special, special way. So we thank you for the relationships that we have. We want to continue to build those relationships and deepen those relationships. Thank you for a common confession of faith. Thank you for your word that is our anchor Thank you for all that you have done. We are grateful.
And it's in the name of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself up for the church that we pray. Amen.